Don't miss out on your chance to be a winner at KBLA Talk 1580. When we come forward, we're bringing everybody with us. Happy anniversary, KBLA! The Federal Reserve decided to leave interest rates alone yesterday. It's the first time since March of 2022 that the central bank decided against a rate hike. Raising rates has been the agency's main tool to fight rising prices. The increases take time to trickle through the economy, but the Fed wants to wait to see whether they're working. But it also expects hikes later this year. Well, the Southern Baptist Convention voted to ban female pastors. The rule approved at the Southern Baptist uh, Convention's annual meeting this week prevents women from becoming pastors at any level. It needs to be voted on again next year to be final. The Southern Baptist Convention, which is the country's biggest Protestant denomination, also voted to affirm the expulsions of two churches that ordain women as pastors. Daniel Penny, a white man accused of killing Jordan Neely, an African-American street performer on a New York City subway last month, by placing him in a chokehold, has been indicted by a grand jury, allowing the trial to move forward. Penny was arraigned last month on a second-degree manslaughter charge in the death of 30-year-old Mr. Neely. He was captured on video putting Mr. Neely in a chokehold in a subway car after Mr. Neely was seen acting in a hostile manner. However, Mr. Neely never attacked anyone on that subway car. If convicted, Daniel Penny faces up to 15 years in prison. The Republican-led House voted to table a measure today that would censure Representative Adam B. Schiff for pressing allegations that former President Donald Trump's 2016 campaign colluded with Russia. 20 Republicans voted with Democrats to table the measure, effectively killing it in a vote of 225 to 196. Two Republicans and five Democrats voted present. Fort Polk, an army installation in Louisiana that for decades bore the name of a Confederate general, was redesignated Fort Johnson on Tuesday in honor of Sergeant William Henry Johnson, a black soldier whose battlefields heroics during World War I earned him the nation's top military award for valor nearly a century later. Fort Johnson is among nine Army posts that have been selected to be renamed as the Department of Defense attempts to make its ranks more inclusive for marginalized groups like women and racial minorities, while also reckoning with longstanding racial inequities. Well, nine women have filed a sexual assault lawsuit against Bill Cosby. This happened in Nevada yesterday, just, just weeks after the state passed a law eliminating the statute of limitations for civil cases. The lawsuit filed in U.S. District Court for Nevada accuses Cosby of using his enormous power, fame, and prestige to isolate and sexually assault each of the nine women named in the lawsuit. Cosby also faces a civil lawsuit in California filed this month by former Playboy model Victoria Valentino. Ms. Valentino has accused Cosby of drugging her and raping her in 1969. Bill Cosby, through a spokesperson, denies all of the allegations. 
You are listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. In this hour, I'm joined by two brilliant contributors, Kennedy Sessions. She is a Houston area metro reporter for Cron, and Isaac Wilson. He is a Democratic strategist and chair of the Democratic Party of Florence County in South Carolina. And in hour two, I go behind the headlines and dig deeper into those stories that everyone is talking about. And today, that story is reparations. If you live in California, Detroit, St. Louis, Palm Springs, Evanston, San Francisco, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or even Sacramento, California, then you know that the issue of reparations has become a regular part of today's news cycle. So today I'm going to ask, why is this topic gaining so much traction in the mainstream media and are descendants of African-Americans who were enslaved by uh, you know white folks in this country centuries ago? Are these descendants really going to receive a check? Yes, asking if compensation is going to be paid to descendants of slaves, and if so, how much? We've seen uh, San Francisco's issued a reparations report talking about $5 million being paid to Blacks in San Francisco. California's reparations report is due out at the end of the month. Uh, some say that that task force could be recommending a million plus uh, be paid to descendants of slaves in California. I have two of the country's leading experts on reparations joining me in hour two. This is one conversation you don't want to miss. But before I bring on my guests, here's what I'm thinking about in real time. Today, I'm paying tribute to Tori Bowie. An Olympic sprinter, Tori was 32 years old when she died. She was once the fastest woman in the world. Unfortunately, though, she was found dead May 2nd in her Winter Garden, Florida home after Orange County sheriffs in that community went to conduct a well-being check on her. An autopsy report that was released this week revealed that Tori died from complications related to childbirth and that she had been in labor at the time that she died. Respiratory distress and eclampsia are a rare but severe pregnancy-related conditions that can include seizures and even a coma and unfortunately are more prevalent in Black women. These conditions were listed as complications or possible complications contributing to Tori's death. Now, the autopsy report revealed that Tori, who was five feet, nine inches tall, weighed just 96 pounds when she died. Her autopsy report also listed bipolar disorder as a part of her medical history. Also in this autopsy report, it says that Tori's baby was stillborn and they listed the cause of death for her baby as intrauterine fetal demise due to a maternal condition. And basically, that just means that this child died while in the uterus. Tori's manager has spoken out in the media and said that she had a conversation with Tori right before she died. Tori was excited about being a new mother. She tried to remind Tori about the need to eat. She said Tori had a habit of not 
eating a whole lot. And she was reminding her that she had to eat for two. And Tori assured her manager that she was taking care of herself. And just days later, she was found dead in her home. Now, Tori's death has put a new spotlight on maternal deaths in the U.S., where we know maternal mortality rates are higher than anywhere else in the developed world, and where Black mothers are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women. Now, in the wake of Tori's passing, her teammates from the USA Olympic team uh, Tiana Madison shared that she nearly died while giving birth to her son in 2021. In her social media posts, Madison further highlighted the fact that three of the four women who ran on the second fastest four by 100 meter relay of all time, the 2016 Olympic champions, three of these four women have nearly died or died in childbirth. And Tiana Madison was referring to Tori and fellow track star Allison Felix, who also had a very difficult pregnancy in 2018. Bowie was a three-time Olympic medalist. She won gold in that women's four by 100 meter relay at the 2016 Olympic Games. She also took home silver in the 100 meter and bronze in the 200 meter races. Today, I am wishing Tori's family light and love and am hoping that her death yet is another catalyst for this country to do better, to do more, to save the lives of Black women who give birth in this country. Rest in peace, my dear sister. When we come forward, more of today's trending news right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and this is the News Hour. And I'm joined in this hour by two brilliant contributors, Kennedy Sessions and Isaac Wilson. Uh, welcome back to the show to both of you. I, I want to start with you, Isaac. Were you surprised to see that Republicans actually voted with Democrats to kill this resolution that would have censured uh, Adam Schiff, Democrat Adam Schiff, who was a leader uh, in the House in the impeachment trials of Donald Trump? And it wasn't just a resolution to censure him, what removed him from office, but it, it would have been uh, you know, a mark on his record, but there was also a part of this resolution to fine him $16 million. And 20 Republicans said, nah, we, we're not here for this personal vendetta that uh, Kevin McCarthy or Jim Jordan has against Shift, and they put a stop to it. Did that shock you at all? Uh, it didn't shock me. Um, uh, Republic, anything Republicans do, whether positive or negative, it has an adverse effect uh, on their party. Um, and I think they sometimes think, OK, hey, we say a lot of crazy things uh, in this chamber. And so this could be us next time around. And we don't want that to happen. Uh, so I wasn't shocked by that at all. $16 million is a lot of money. I don't think Republicans want to pay that to the government. <laughs> and also, when you talk about somebody like Donald Trump, 
and his minions of MAGA supporters, they're going to say something that is crazy. They have been saying things are crazy. So I think they're saying, hey, let's not even talk about that. Let's not discuss that. And let's move on to something else that's important. Yeah, I, I'm a little surprised. So, Isaac, you said you're not surprised. I'm Kennedy, not surprised. It I helps was... them out in the long run. Well, yes, and we know they're not known for being the party of logic and reason. <laughs> they're not mm-hmm. known for being the party that does things that are even in their own best interest. In fact, they often vote in ways and take positions that are against their best interests. What about you, Kennedy? Did you have any shock or surprise or, you know, when you learned that 20 of these Republicans voted, uh, you know, to kill this ridiculous, vindictive resolution? I mean, I was a little bit shocked. I feel like we're really starting to see as time goes on how the Republican Party is really splitting up and who's going to write for Trump and who's not. And even just with the indictment hearings happening and, and all the drama that's been happening this week, seeing the people who have decided to come out and make full statements and not come out and, you know, how things are kind of shifting and the infighting in their own party. It's just it's honestly been kind of fun to watch. Yeah, I read an article that said Kevin McCarthy is, uh, you know, taking a YOLO approach. You only live once. He doesn't know how long he's going to be speaker. And he said, as long as I am speaker, I am going to live it up. Uh, They have pictures of him in the hallways of the Congress asking people to take selfies with him, (laughs) stopping to talk to, you know, tourists that are in the Capitol, and they say he's having a pretty good time, but he knows he he's on borrowed time. Exactly. He doesn't know how long it's going to be before the extremists in the party try to unseat him because there's not a long history of folks in the Republican Party being in that seat uh, for long. But uh, I just thought it was interesting that uh, he seems a little unfazed by all the, the crazy from his extremists in the party, and he's just trying to live it up. Well, he... Yeah, no, no, I was going to say he he watching him trying to even get to the position in the first place. And he was trying to act like everything was okay, peachy key, you know, everything's good. We're all fine. And it's like they don't want you there. They don't stand by you. They don't think that you properly represent them. So, yeah, I I understand why he's doing that. He's trying to live in his power right now, live in his position. Yeah, He wanted that job really, 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 really badly. So. Uh, It makes sense that he would be approaching it in the way that he is. All right, Isaac, let's talk about Trump and Latino voters. You know, he's playing a long game with these Latino voters. After this historic arraignment that happened in that Miami federal courthouse, he didn't go home and ball himself up in a knot. He didn't go back to Mar-a-Lago and, you know, cry into his pillow. He made a bunch of stops. And one of those stops was at a very popular, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Latin restaurant. He actually did an interview on Americano Media where he went live. Uh, and this is a conservative Spanish language outlet. He went live on that uh, outlet and he criticized Joe Biden. He criticized uh, Ron DeSantis. And, you know, then he stopped at this Cuban restaurant, Versailles. And this, this is a known pit stop for presidential candidates. And he was greeted by a cheering crowd at this restaurant. They were taking selfies and people were praying for him and, you know, expressing their support for him. Do you think this is going to be effective as Trump tries to solidify his votes in Florida, particularly with Cuban-Americans? And It it will be effective. Yeah, it it will be effective. Um, Definitely effective. When you raise seven million dollars since the start of your indictment, um, (laughs) something you're doing uh, is effective. 
Uh, so Trump can rally people, might not be people we like, but he's been able to rally and pick up the pieces uh, of the people that are still left um, that are supporting him. And so he can bring these people out of the woods. Um, he can say, hey, I won't leave you behind. The Democratic Party has, it, has, but I won't. And so those are the people that Donald Trump can wake up and speak to. And those people will continue to support him because they think that he has their best interests at hand and won't leave them uh, behind. But rest assured, Donald Trump, let one Latino do something wrong and Donald Trump will categorize them and throw them under the bus. That's what's so bizarre. And we're going to do a <laughs> show uh, on, I guess, the Stockholm syndrome is what some experts call it. It's folks that continue to support Donald Trump, even though he has denigrated them. And mm -hmm. Latinos are definitely, a, 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 you know, a, a demographic that he has denigrated uh, Kennedy, but yet the folks at this Versailles restaurant, this Cuban restaurant, uh, really see similarities in, in their struggle and their experiences similar to Donald Trump because he's framed himself as a political prisoner, as someone who's being persecuted because of his political beliefs. Uh, he's painting Joe Biden as a Castro-like figure uh, a socialist that's, you know, out, a, a dictator. And a lot of these folks in this restaurant and in this community, they're buying it. Yeah, I mean, I think we've kind of seen, all of us are in the political sphere. We've seen the, you know, the momentum that has been catching up with Republicans and specifically with Latino voters. But I think it's going to be interesting to watch both DeSantis and Trump in Florida specifically, because that's supposed to be DeSantis stopping grounds. But obviously Trump, being a longtime Floridian, like he also has pool, um, you know, in Miami and other parts of the state. And so, yeah, I don't understand the appeal. I really don't understand it. <laughs> but that's just me. Maybe he's touching a nerve. Well, the appeal he's saying to these these Cubans, many of them that have, you know, PTSD yeah. from mm -hmm. living in Cuba, having to escape the regime there to come to the U.S., He's saying, you remember what it was like, right? You remember the oppression that you experienced there. That's what's happening here. And it's happening under a Joe Biden and a Democratic mm -hmm. administration. And if you vote for me, he's back to saying I can fix all of the country's problems. I think now he's down to six months. He said, if you vote for me, you know, I'll, I'll set you free. I mean, that's essentially the appeal that he's making. And you can imagine people who have been traumatized who lived under Castro and that oppressive regime, that might sound okay to him, Isaac. That might sound like music to their ears. I mean, it could sound nice, but it's also, there's no policy points. So it's it's really just talking points. He's just saying things that sound good and they that he knows is going to strike a trauma nerve, if, if we're being honest. You know, if you can get somebody emotionally to think about their history as, you know, in another country, the struggle of their family, finding a job, the economy, et cetera, then he's going to strike a nerve. And it seems like he is, but I just don't think policy-wise there's any meat there. But if, if it's not, if that's not enough for them and all they need is the talking points, then, you know, that's on them. Well, well you know, Isaac, that people vote their hearts oftentimes, right? They mm -hmm. vote for the candidate that they identify with, that they relate to, that they have some kind of emotional attachment. You can ask many voters about the policies of candidates that they voted for, and they can't tell you one thing that that candidate is either for or against. But Kennedy raises a good point, Isaac, and that's going to be that Florida battle. You got the governor who was reelected, overwhelmingly so, 
So he's by all accounts popular in Florida. And then you have Donald Trump saying, no, 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 no. I am the king of Florida. I'm going to win Florida. Who wins that battle, Isaac? You have you have two separate uh, things uh, to consider here. Donald Trump goes after things that the Democrats aren't talking about. There, there hasn't been a Democrat to come out to Latinos down in Florida to say, hey, do you remember your, you know, uh, problems that you had in Cuba? We aren't talking about that. So he's pulling at the heartstrings saying, I remember that. I'm with you. I understand. And I'm and I'm here to help you. Democrats haven't done that. So the only thing they have is a chance to believe him and saying he's going to get to the policy. Uh, the other thing is to remember that Suarez is going to get in this race. Oh, he already announced. Didn't he announce today? He, he, he filed his paperwork to run. Okay. So he's going to get in this race. And so, so tell us, gonna... for those folks who don't know who Suarez is, other than this really, really, really good looking man, tell, tell us who he is. <laughs> <laughs> Had to throw that out there. So Isaac, go ahead and tell us who he is. Suarez <laughs> is the mayor uh, of, of Miami. Um, and he he's gonna he's gonna have some support, not not win the nomination, but he's gonna take some of that support away from Donald Trump and be able to tell the people, hey, Donald Trump can't do anything about what happened to you in Cuba. There's no policy to that. But people are so ingrained with the way that Donald Trump can deliver and seemingly be for them that they're gonna follow him. One thing they can rest assured is that you've been president. Suarez, we, we love you as a mayor. But you haven't been there. So we're coming on Donald Trump uh, to get us over the mark. That's a good point. So, Kennedy, we were talking about a two way race in Florida. But Mayor Francis Suarez, the the conservative mayor of Miami, uh, Uh filed his papers. He's the 43rd mayor of Miami. He's the first Miami born mayor. And, you know, he is really popular there. So now it's not a two way race. It is a three way race. Uh, to win Florida, you know who who is going to be the last man standing in Florida? It's gonna be I don't know. I feel like Suarez. I didn't. I I mean, I heard about the rumors of him, you know, announcing a run, but now that's official. Like, if he has Miami locked, it it just they're gonna be scrapping it. And it really sounds like <laughs> right. it, it, because um, I don't think. I think Trump Trump has pool, DeSantis has pool, and obviously Suarez has pool. So I, I don't know. I feel like maybe on the state level, Suarez takes the win, but nationally, can he really make an impression on other Republican voters? Like it's well, be- you know, it's gonna be interesting. He's 45, so he's much younger than Trump, obviously, half mm-hmm. Trump's age. Uh he's younger than DeSantis, and his retail politics by everything I've read and seen, much better than DeSantis. DeSantis is stiff as a rock, gets into a room, it seems like he has and I, this is not to denigrate people who have social anxiety because it's a real thing. And a lot of people get treatment for it. But he seems like he has some kind of social anxiety uh, around people. He gets you know, he gets really nervous. Uh, and around delivery is not the same as like a Trump or, you know, other political figures. I feel like he has a hard time sometimes doing interviews, really, you know, catching like waves and, you know, really talking to the people. I don't think he's really there yet, but I don't know. It's going to be a dog fight. Hold hold that thought, Uh, Isaac. It's going to be a dog fight in Florida for sure. When we come forward, more about the three-way race in Florida for the Republican nomination to be president. Also going to talk about uh, Jordan Neely and his tragic death on that New York subway. What's going to happen next? And we're also going to talk about 
what's happening in uh, the presidential race around Joe Biden when we come forward right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. By the latest Intel Core processors, plus get deals on select accessories and free shipping on everything. Save now by calling 877-ASK-DELL. The KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. Ray Richardson. The U.S. Open, one of the premier golf events on the PGA Tour, teed off today at the L.A. Country Club without Tiger Woods. Woods declined an invitation to play in the four-day tournament. He's still recovering from ankle surgery. Tiger has had lingering problems with his ankle since he was injured in that car crash here in L.A. in 2021. In April, the 47-year-old Woods had to withdraw from the Masters on the third day, and he was unable to play in the PGA Championships last month. Tiger grew up in the L.A. area. He's the only L.A. native to win the U.S. Open. The Dodgers are back in action tonight against the Chicago White Sox. The Dodgers are 3-7 and seven in their last 10 games. They've been having trouble holding on the leads. The bullpen gave up six runs combined in the eighth and ninth inning last night. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. More news, opinions, and conversation when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Every weekday during the month of June, we're giving away gear from the KBLA.store to say thank you for your support of KBLA Talk 1580 as we celebrate our second anniversary. Each weekday, a different host will be giving away fresh merch to one lucky caller. All you have to do is keep it locked to KBLA Talk 1580 throughout the day, and our host will tell you when to dial in and when. It's our way of showing appreciation to you for helping make KBLA Talk 1580 the most trusted, credible, and reliable source of information for listeners just like you. Here's hoping you'll be one of our lucky winners. But you can always head over to the KBLA.store anytime for the best in KBLA Talk 1580 gear for yourself and great gift ideas. Now, celebrating two years of being your go-to, we're KBLA Talk 1580, and we've got your black. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Did you get the photo? All right, we are back with uh, my contributors. I'm talking to Isaac and Kennedy, and we're talking about the presidential race. Everybody pretty much assumed it was going to be a Joe Biden versus Donald Trump race. Now we have some wrinkles, and maybe it's not going to be Trump and Biden or even DeSantis and Biden. Francis Suarez, a 45-year-old very popular mayor in Miami, announced today that he is running for president. He's running on the uh, Republican as a Republican. Uh, he is considered a moderate conservative. And he says he's running a different kind of campaign. Uh, Isaac, he says, look, he's going to be more in the vein of Ronald Reagan. It's going to be youthful. It's going to be aspirational. It's going to be inspirational. And he says he's exactly what the party needs. He's the first and only Hispanic in the race. And he's going to run a cross-cultural campaign. So maybe those Latino voters that Donald Trump was trying to court at that restaurant are really going to be Suarez voters. What kind of a wrinkle does this throw in the election on the Republican side, having this young uh, Cuban uh, attorney in the race? Maybe you can have someone who is charismatic, who's good looking, like you say, uh, 
<laughs> who is uh, who is young, uh, like I said, charismatic, and he is the mayor of one of the largest cities uh, in our in our nation, and so he's been able to win that since 2017. So that's no no small feat. So he has a large Latino Hispanic Cuban base in Miami. That's where most of them go, and so if they've been able to vote for him in Miami, now they can say, whoa. Donald Trump. We didn't know he. This man was getting in the race, so we're going to put our money around somebody that we actually know that we live with. Um, and and this is somebody he can uh that can rally somebody like a um a a a, uh, a Adam Kinzinger to come down and and campaign with him, uh, Liz Cheney to come down and say, hey, this is the guy that you need. So you can get back to the middle of the road as a Republican, and if he can get that. Uh, get that popularity up. I think you might see some of those MAGA Republicans uh, get behind him and say, hey, this is where our party needs to go. We can still be conservative and still be uh, middle-of-the-road Republicans. Yeah, I, I think, Kennedy, for many Republicans, we have to keep in mind that the Trump base is, by some accounts, only 30% of the Republican Party. It just depends on what poll you're looking at in any given day. But that leaves a lot of room for those Republicans that want a fresh face that doesn't want a, a, a retread, whether it's Mike Pence or uh, Chris Christie, and they don't want a DeSantis who has been effectively a Trump, you know, sycophant who mm -hmm. read a book to his kids about Donald Trump while the kids were wearing a, a Trump onesie. So they don't want a guy like DeSantis who really was a big Trump supporter and maybe uh, Suarez, who has been critical both of Trump and critical of DeSantis, comes in and is that fresh face that some Republicans are looking for. No, for sure. I completely agree. And I really think that so far you've just kind of seen, especially among Republican voters, it feels like they've been kind of looking for somebody else for a long time. They weren't happy about Nikki Haley. They didn't really get energized about Tim Scott. Chris Christie's name didn't do anything. Mike Pence's name for sure didn't do anything for them. And so I definitely think that this is their time, honestly, to really look at somebody like Suarez as a, as a potential candidate, not only in the primary, but like long term, his longevity yeah. in the political party, because he's so young, he has been very critical of Republican leadership so far. And so just seeing how far that's going to go, I definitely think the GOP is like, you know, they're ready. Yeah, for he's someone we definitely have to keep our eye out on. You're right. Maybe uh, he's not going to beat us in 2024. Don't get it twisted, Mr. Suarez. Yeah, but <laughs> like, 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 not too much for us. We, we, yeah, uh, we, we like you. People, but we like you a little yeah. bit, but we're we not going to vote for you in the general election. <laughs> but he is a rising star, Isaac, in the Republican Party. And speaking of rising stars, uh, you have some intel that a Democratic congressman from California who considers himself very much a progressive in the vein of Bernie Sanders, Rokana, has been visiting South Carolina, which is now what the number one first voting place uh, for the Democratic primary that he's been dipping into South Carolina, meeting with some pretty influential people. Tell us what you know about Rokana and his visits to the state. 
Yeah, Rokana has been visiting here since the early part of this year, uh, visiting down places like Charleston, Greenville, Horry County, uh, Columbia, which are four uh, big counties in South Carolina that if you're running for president or thinking about running, whether it's now or later, you need to go talk to the major players that are there. And so uh, I will be amongst the people that will meet with him uh, come July the 5th and 6th, which is his next uh, meeting here. So I'll know more information there. But he has been here um, every month. I think wow. since uh, March, he's been here every month uh, holding events for candidates um, and which will be his reason for coming in July. He's coming to uh, campaign for a candidate down in Charleston for Charleston City Council. So that is a big deal. So you got a wait, wait, wait. You got a congressman from California coming to South Carolina campaigning for a local city council race, you said? Oh, yes, yeah. and he will hold a fundraiser for him. Yes. Okay, y'all. That ain't normal stuff. No, I love that. It. Ain't how this works. <laughs> this dude that's been elected in California to represent Californians would not normally be in South Carolina supporting a local city council race. Something is up. Rokana is on a mission. Now, yes, we don't know if that is a Suarez type mission and we're going to get a video saying he's running for president. He's going to challenge Joe Biden or if he's getting himself ready on the national level to be uh, in place in 2028 after Joe Biden's second term. But we, we, we need to keep our eye on that. And we need you, Isaac, to keep us in the know about what is going on with this California congressman. And these trips to South Carolina, because like I said, that ain't normal politics stuff. So, yeah. all right, we got to get on to some of these other stories. This is so fascinating what's happening in these political races, though. L let's talk, though, uh, Kennedy, about Fort Polk. Why is it that America went and named all of these monuments after generals that were traitors to the country? I, like, like, whose idea was that to name all of these yeah. monuments after Confederates? Confederate generals. I mean, they were losers and they still got, you know, recognition, but not I mean, recognition. They got big. They got a whole, yeah, they got a whole monuments. And got, yeah, it's crazy losers. As you said, who loses and gets a big bronze statue of them? It's it's really sad, honestly, because we're think we're talking about people who thought it was okay that our people were enslaved, basically. That's what we're talking about. And so when you think about how the country now, all these years later, is trying to make up for it, it's it's like finally, like, you know, like it was time. I don't understand the fixation on these Confederate generals. I don't understand why they are super important other than the fact that they lost and that their mission lost and whatever they were trying to do. And so um, now that, you know, it's turning into like change all of them, why, like take them all down, change all the names. I could I don't need to see it and I don't want our kids to see it. And I'm sad that we had to witness it, honestly. Yeah. Not only did they think it was OK to enslave people, they fought to uphold the institution of slavery. They gave their lives fighting uh, to ensure that slave, slave and the slave trade and slavery would, would remain in place in the U.S. And I, I like what you said, Kennedy. What is up with the drip, drip, Isaac? Why don't just whole scale, we just identify every Confederate monument in this country and just on one day say they're all going down? 
we have enough heroes, black, brown, uh, indigenous folks, uh, women who yep. have contributed to this country and the building up of this country who who don't have statues anywhere. So why do you think we are so uh, hesitant to in one full swoop just say no longer will we pay tribute to Confederate generals? For one, uh, all of them are, uh, you know, state based. Uh, most of them are state based. Uh, you have some federal monuments. And so uh, the federal government is kind of scared to say, hey, we're going to mess with the states, although it's their monument <laughs> in some areas. And then you have state government who is some of these states are red and they're going to fly with, you know, with their people. That's that's just simply it. We are a red state here in South Carolina. Uh, the Republicans control the Senate, the House and the governorship. There's nothing that Democrats can do about a statue unless we get out there and get in the streets. And so when they say we, when we get in the streets, someone gets killed. So it's like you, you, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Um, so we got to find a solution to it. Um, but I would love to see more women, white or black, that have contributed to uh, America's society uh, and been inclusive to all races. I would love to see them have monuments built instead of getting these men built um, here uh, and so they identified 12 uh, bases that they're going to change. They already changed Fort Bragg to Fort Liberty. Don't like the name, but at least it's not Fort Bragg anymore. Right. Yes, uh, drip, drip, drip. We'll take it however we can get it. When we come forward, uh, is Daniel Penny taking a page out of Kyle Rittenhouse's playbook in order to uh, avoid being convicted of second-degree manslaughter in the choking death of Jordan Neely. When we come forward, right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Daniel Penny, a white man who is accused of killing Jordan Neely, an African-American street performer on the New York subway last month, uh, has been indicted by a Manhattan grand jury. So this allows the second degree manslaughter charges to move forward and a trial to be set. And the question is, is Daniel Penny uh, taking a page out of Kyle Rittenhouse's playbook? He has issued uh, Kennedy this video where he's giving a play by play of what happened. Uh, that he thinks, uh, you know, exonerates him. He's raised $2.8 million. So he has become in many ways a martyr, a hero in the same way that we saw Kyle Rittenhouse. What do you make of, of him being so out front at a time when most lawyers will be telling their clients, don't make any public statements. They can be used against you in this very serious manslaughter charge. But he's all but going on national TV doing a media tour. I mean, I think it's a book exactly on a Kyle Rittenhouse book. And now look at Kyle Rittenhouse. Like, he's walking the streets. He's giving speeches. He's having a good time. And so it's it's really sad because it seems like a lot of these martyrs can and continue to be very popular amongst the right wing base. And they and like you said, the two point eight million dollars, like, can you imagine we're dealing with inflation we're dealing with all these economic issues and people are just giving this man money um, after watching something so horrific like his death, Jordan Neely's death. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's exactly what they probably are telling him to do because they're like, hey, you're the you're the new guy. So just be in the moment. 
Yeah, it's really disturbing, Isaac, to see even some of these Republican candidates uh, who are running for president, get, you know, weigh in and voice their support for Daniel Penny. The witnesses on that train, the investigation has revealed, which is why he was indicted, that he acted recklessly, that Jordan Neely, although he was maybe acting in an erratic fashion, he was not threatening anyone on that train. He didn't have a knife. He didn't have a gun. He didn't uh, use his fist. He didn't physically uh, attack anyone. And if you ride a train in any major city, and particularly in New York City, to see someone talking to themselves or making statements, that's not all that uncommon. Most people, if, they, if they're bothered by it, they get up and they go to the next you know, subway car, or they move, or maybe they get on their phone and call 911. But to literally get out of your seat and grab someone and put them in a chokehold is extreme by any measure. And now to have folks saying he's a hero because he killed a black man who now we know was homeless, we know had mental health issues, and we know all of that because the media is quick to give us the background of Jordan Neely, all we know about Daniel Penny is that he was a Marine. So he gets this very, you know, uh, sanitized bio in the media, whereas Jordan Neely is basically being vilified uh, for what are seemingly, you know, his, his mental health challenges. Uh, you're on mute, Isaac. House. Kyle, Kyle Rittenhouse um, is it, it, <laughs> low class. To Dylan Roof. I think this guy is a Dylan Roof guy. He wants to rid the world uh, of, of black folk. Um, and he's finishing that uh he's finishing that off for, for Dylan Roof and those other white supremacists. Uh to go and just murder uh, a black man on a train and think that you have the right to do that. That's my thing. It's like the audacity to go and do that. Like you just knew you wasn't going to get caught. You just you knew you wasn't going to get arrested or something. So I think this is more of a Dylan Roof ploy to get rid of of, of black people uh, in America, and they're doing it at uh, at any cost, and they're doing it by uh, by all the standards that they can. And these candidates that are supporting this, or these people that are supporting it, they're in line to say, "Hey, let's rid these black folk." We're losing our country, as as the MAGA Republicans say. We're losing our country. And so we're losing it to people like this. So let's just warn them off, uh, because that's totally ridiculous uh, to have a scene like that and think that you can do that. Clearly, a lot of coded language is being used uh, by yes. him and his team. Clearly, you know, a lot of nods to white supremacists. Uh, clearly, the folks supporting him, I, I would imagine, are some of the same folks that you said are we can imagine that supported Kyle Rittenhouse and Dylan Ruth and others, uh, Ruth and others. It, it's, it's really sad. And which is why, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the Biden Harris candidacy and their opportunity to really talk about bringing the, the soul of this nation back. You know, Joe Biden talks a lot about that. Uh, before we run out of time though, uh, got to end on Mr. Bill Cosby Kennedy. Mr. Cosby now is facing uh, nine plaintiffs who have sued him in Nevada because Nevada has eliminated its statute of limitations. So Nevada is saying if, if you were if you were assaulted 50 years ago or 70 years ago, it doesn't matter. You are not time barred from filing an action. And these nine women are the first out the gate. And I think 
there are probably going to be more lawsuits if there are other plaintiffs living in this state where there's now no longer a statute of limitations. What does Bill Cosby do to defend himself against these charges? Or is there any defense? Um, no. I think that at this point, it seems that he has a lot of history of sexual assault, especially amongst um, a lot of women. And so um, if this is their way to get justice, then I'm this is their way to get justice. And I'm I'm actually very happy about Nevada and the set and dropping the statute of limitations, because a lot of times when we talk about especially something as traumatic as sexual assault, women are and people who are sexual assaulted. Um, have a hard time talking about their experience, have a hard time coming out about their experience. And so having this happen, it's it's a very big deal. And at this point, Bill just needs to write the checks. Yeah, just like, open, just, like just open the checks. And and I'm with you as a lawyer. I am ecstatic about the uh, elimination of the statute of limitations. We've seen some states like New York open up a window of opportunity because you're right. Lots of times sexual assault victims are so intimidated. They are so traumatized by the process that they don't feel as if they can come forward and tell their stories without being further traumatized. And we know women of color in particular, black women suffer in silence. We know that we're often not believed when we do tell our stories. Uh, and I'm glad to see that women are, are, are talking about these issues and coming forward. Now, some folks say, oh my God, you know, how can you prosecute a case that's 50, 60 years old? All the evidence is going to be, you know, destroyed, uh, unavailable. Uh, do you have any concerns, Isaac, about how we weigh the, the, you know, how we balance the need for women to come forward uh, with what could be prosecutions based on stale evidence? Think, I would think that some of them have filed a report early on and just wasn't taken serious. And I think so if they have those reports, um, I think it'll be easy. But to not have any evidence that he says we assault you, I think it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. Uh, but I I agree with uh, with you guys that Donald Trump, Donald Trump, oh, Lord. I, think <laughs> I mean, he's another Trump, one that, yeah. I guess they're one of the same people. They're one of the Freudian same people. Freudian slip, uh, right. <laughs> so I think he just needs to open the checkbook. Those ladies need to say, hey, we'll just take the money. Uh, we don't need the court. And we just go about our business or whatever case may be. This man is almost 90 years old. Uh, this man is dying uh, in in jail. I think he's out now or something. Right? He's out. Uh, he's so, out. Yeah, he's, he's been out. out. So mm -hmm. um, I think he's dying. This man is just get the money and go and don't make it uh, a court case. Just file a civil civil suit, get the money and go live your life. It's been fifty years. Um, you don't have evidence to support that. I'm I'm sure um, rape kits or witnesses. That stuff will be diluted by now. Yeah, I, this is a good day, I think, for sexual assault victims all over this country. Whenever right. women have an opportunity to come forward and tell their stories, it's a good day for all women. We are out of time. Thank you so much, Kennedy Sessions and Isaac Wilson. Always yeah. a pleasure to have both of you on. Uh, I'm a lot smarter and my audience is a lot smarter because of your insights. Uh, when we come forward, we are going deep on the issue of reparations and we're asking, where is the check? And are Black people finally going to get paid for the racial trauma that we have experienced for decades as a result of slavery. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. I'm Amber Payton. Get exactly what you want. Only pay for what you need. Get my plan at your Verizon store today. Is this the 
This is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. The U.S. Open, one of the premier golf events on the PGA Tour, teed off today at the L.A. Country Club without Tiger Woods. Woods declined an invitation to play in the four-day tournament. He's still recovering from ankle surgery. Tiger has had lingering problems with his ankle since he was injured in that car crash here in L.A. in 2021. In April, the 47-year-old Woods had to withdraw from the Masters on the third day, and he was unable to play in the PGA Championships last month. Tiger grew up in the L.A. area. He's the only L.A. native to win the U.S. Open. The Dodgers are back in action tonight against the Chicago White Sox. The Dodgers are 3-7 and seven in their last 10 games. They've been having trouble holding on the leads. The bullpen gave up six runs combined in the eighth and ninth inning last night. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. More news, opinions, and conversation when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA Talk 1580 is dedicated to empowering our communities by providing progressive talk radio for our audience. We strive to be an intersectional voice for the voiceless. As a black-owned and operated station, we are committed to highlighting diverse perspectives and creating safe spaces for meaningful dialogue. We believe that everyone has something unique to bring to these political, economic, social, and cultural conversations. And we don't shy away from the hard conversations about current events. We endeavor to be a beacon of hope and understanding while boldly challenging listeners to think more deeply about difficult topics that impact us all. With this in mind, our mission statement at KBLA Talk 1580 is simple, to create an inclusive platform that promotes civil discourse through honest dialogue and encourages personal growth among our listeners so they can become the active agents of change. Our vision is to establish ourselves as the premier radio network with relevant programming across the beloved community connecting people through shared experiences and collective power for lasting impact beyond these challenging times. The Federal Reserve decided to leave interest rates alone yesterday. It's the first time since March of 2022 that the central bank decided against a rate hike. Raising rates has been the agency's main tool to fight rising prices. The increases take time to trickle through the economy, so the Fed wants to wait to see whether they're working, but it also expects hikes later this year. The Southern Baptist Convention voted to ban female pastors. The rule approved at the SBC's annual meeting this week prevents women from becoming pastors at any level. Now, this needs to be voted on again next year to become final. The SBC, which is the country's biggest Protestant denomination, also voted to affirm the expulsions of two churches that ordain women as pastors. Daniel Penny, a white man accused of killing Jordan Neely, an African-American street performer on a New York subway last month by placing him in a chokehold, has been indicted by a grand jury, allowing a trial to move forward. Penny was arraigned last month on a second-degree manslaughter charge in the death of 30-year-old Mr. Neely. Penny was captured on video putting Mr. Neely in a chokehold in a subway car after Mr. Neely was seen acting in an erratic manner. The Republican-led House voted to table a measure yesterday that would censor Representative Adam B. Schiff for pressing allegations that former President Donald Trump's 2016 campaign colluded with Russia. 20 Republicans voted with Democrats to table the measure, effectively killing it in a vote of 225 to 196. 
Fort Polk, an army installation in Louisiana that for decades bore the name of a Confederate general, was redesignated Fort Johnson this week in honor of Sergeant William Henry Johnson, a Black soldier whose battlefield heroics during World War I earned him the nation's top military award for valor nearly a century later. Fort Johnson is among nine Army posts that have been selected to be renamed as the Department of Defense attempts to make its ranks more inclusive for marginalized groups like women and racial minorities, while also reckoning with longstanding racial inequities. Well, nine women filed a sexual assault lawsuit against Bill Cosby in Nevada yesterday. Now, this is just weeks after the state passed a law eliminating the statute of limitations for civil cases. The lawsuit filed in U.S. District Court for Nevada accuses Cosby of using his enormous power, his fame, and prestige to isolate and sexually assault each of the nine women named in the lawsuit. Cosby also faces a civil lawsuit in California, filed this month by former Playboy model Victoria Valentino. She has accused Cosby of drugging her and raping her in 1969. Bill Cosby, through a spokesperson, has denied all of the allegations. You are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time. And I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. And this is the second hour of Ariva Martin in real time. And in this hour, we go behind the headlines. We dig deep on those stories that have everybody talking. And the biggest story in the news today, particularly for African-Americans, is the story of reparations. Whether you live in California or Missouri or Illinois or even Detroit, Michigan, you probably have seen the issue of reparations in the news. California, in fact, has one of the nation's only task force that has been meeting for almost two years and which is scheduled to produce a 1,000-page report by July 1st, outlining the harms that African-Americans in California have suffered for decades and the proposed repair for those harms. Uh, I'm joined in this hour by two of the nation's leading reparations experts, Dr. Charles Henry. He's a professor emeritus of African-American studies at the University of California at Berkeley. He's written extensively about reparations. He's uh, done a lot of research on it, and he's one of the leading voices on the issue of reparations. Also joining me in this hour is radio host and historian Michael N. Hopetip. He is the host of the African History Network show. He's also been outspoken on the issues of reparations. Uh, when we come forward, we're going to talk about the issues, reparations. We're going to talk about some of the uh, local initiatives that are happening around the country and this Pew Research survey that says only 30% of U.S. adults support reparations for slavery. Uh, now that number when polled or when you poll African-Americans, that 30% goes up to 77%. Uh, not surprising that African-Americans are overwhelmingly in support of reparations. But we're going to talk about what is it going to take to get the rest of the country uh, on the same page and really Look at the question of cash payments. It becomes a thorny issue for some as they discuss what should be done. Is it cash? Is it policies? Is it a combination of the two? 
when we come forward. More on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. And in this hour, I'm joined by Dr. Charles Henry. He is a professor emeritus of African-American studies at the University of California at Berkeley and radio host and historian Michael N. Hoptep. Uh, he is the host of the African History Network. Uh, all right. To you esteemed panelists, we are talking about reparations, and I am myself involved as a civil rights attorney and lead attorney for an action that's, I'll call it the cousin to reparations. It's, it involves a racial atrocity in Palm Springs, California, and uh, hundreds of clients that I represent are seeking some form of restitution and reparative justice. But when I think about what's going to happen in California in the next two weeks or so, we're going to get this thousand page report. Uh, and this is a report that has uh, been developed after two years of fact finding and public hearings, the California Reparations Task Force will hand over to the California Assembly this extensive report and recommendations for compensation to eligible Black people of California for the harms of slavery. But one of the members of the task force said that the final report, Professor Henry, will not include any dollar recommendations. Now, we know previous reports indicated that the task force would recommend $1.2 million per eligible person and that amount to be paid in installments. But now we're hearing that the committee decided to have the economists propose uh, methodologies to calculate the harm and not provide any specific amount. Why is it that you think the task force is veering away from a specific dollar amount asked? You know, the U.S. has come up with billions of dollars for the Ukraine. We've given millions, multi-millions of dollars to 9-11 victims. We obviously gave, uh, you know, more than a billion dollars to uh, Japanese Americans. We paid them a, a form of reparations. Why when it comes to Black folks, do folks get skittish about asking for money for the harm that we have suffered? Well, uh, I, I think the commission has left the, the hard part to the, the legislature or the political arm to solve but you kind of got at it in some earlier remarks when you said uh, roughly 65, 70% of blacks were for some reparations. And you just flip that around in terms of whites being opposed to, to reparations. When you look at those polling numbers, they always, always lead with cash reparations. Who should I pay and how much? That That's the most divisive issue. If I ask 10 black folks, how much should you get? I'm going to get 10 different answers to that question. If I ask who should pay, I'm going to get different answers. Should it be the federal government? Should it be the state government? Should it be those people who discriminated against us? Um, and, and how you calculate it, even the economists, if, if you look at William Darity's work, do you calculate the, the total worth of the enslaved population at the Civil War? Do you calculate what they would have been paid if they had been paid some wage over that period? Do you calculate what 40 acres and a mule would have been worth if they had all received that? So these are all positions that people have put forward in terms of how much compensation 
But, you know, I'm, I'm with Martin Luther King. I don't think there's a silver bullet. I don't think if you write me a check and uh, it's some amount that I some some amount that I come up with and say, you know, you owe me two million dollars and you give me two million dollars. OK, that's fine. I, I the, the pain and suffering of slavery has all been erased now and we're, we're equal now. Um, cash but, reparations. But let, me, but let me stop you, Professor Henry, yeah. because we know we have an imperfect judicial system and we have a civil system that does compensate people with money when they have suffered a harm. It doesn't, you know, heal the harm. If you get killed, your loved one gets killed in an automobile accident and you get a settlement or you get a, ver a jury verdict, a civil jury verdict uh, for that person's lost income and loss of future income, it doesn't heal the hole in your heart because you've lost your loved one, but it is the system that we have. So I guess I'm, I'm just asking, why is it though, when we talk about money, being paid to black folks to heal the harm that we've suffered, we get told, well, we shouldn't focus on money or, we, you know, we, money is divisive. Money is how we heal harms in this country. So why does it become divisive when we're talking about healing the harms from slavery? Well, I think you, 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 you mentioned, in fact, a legal case. And I think the legal system has been the least productive in terms of producing some results and doing restorative justice. It can do a distributive justice, that is, you can get a check, but it doesn't restore you, as you mentioned. It doesn't restore you. And there have been three kinds of real barriers in terms of pursuing legal redress. One is standing. Have you specifically been harmed by another person act, person's actions that you can identify? There's sovereign immunity, because often we're talking about suing a government, either state, city, or local, and governments have all kinds of powers that prevent you from doing that. And uh, uh, third, you have to have some, uh, there's a statute of limitations to many of these. So the legal, the legal route has been the least productive. Where we've seen success in Rosewood, in Evanston, and other places is through the political process. Right. And, and I wasn't suggesting that the legal process was the process through which we use. I was just giving the analogy that in the legal civil process, we do use money compensation or compensation as a way to address harms that people have suffered. Let me let you jump in here, Michael. What what is your thoughts? Like, you know, how are you thinking about these conversations around reparations, particularly when we start talking about cash payments? Well, it's. Uh, it's a complicated uh, conversation and topic. One of the things that complicates it is, one, Americans are very ignorant of history. Two, Americans really don't understand the history of slavery. Three, uh, America has really been built on anti-African, anti-Black sentiments, laws, etc. Four, when we talk about repairing the damage of a legacy of slavery, 246 years of slavery, decades of Jim Crow segregation, redlining, sundown towns, uh, et cetera, housing discrimination, things like this. Um, chattel slavery ended basically 1865 when uh, the 13th Amendment is ratified, December 6, 1865, when Georgia ratifies the 13th Amendment. So when you compare trying to repair the damage of that and what happens after slavery ends, uh, to say Japanese Americans getting $1.6 billion for approximately 82,250 Japanese Americans who were put into uh, internment camps during World War II. Um, all the last of the former slaves died in the 1950s. 
When you had the hearings uh, in Congress leading up to 1988 for the reparations for Japanese Americans, you had survivors who testified what happened to them. We don't have firsthand accounts. Who We don't have former slaves who are still alive who can articulate that. OK, when we talk about uh, Rosewood and Rosewood, that went to the uh, survivors of Rosewood who were children at the time in 1921. Arnett Doctor was the one who led that uh, fight to get reparations for the survivors so they could articulate what happened. Even in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the, the three survivors of the Tulsa race massacre of June 1921, they're still alive so they can articulate that. Well, when we deal with chattel slavery from uh, some say 1619 or say 16 or after the 1680 when uh, the term white is introduced into uh, the colony of Virginia up until 1865. All those are dead. And there's a uh, with this anti-critical race theory uh, backlash. You have many Republicans in various state legislatures passing laws to suppress the teaching of this very history, which would expose what has happened in this country, which would cause people to realize that we have to repair that damage. So there's ignorance, there's indifference, there's a lack of understanding of law, all that. And we're trying to navigate through this cesspool all at the same time. So let me ask you this, Dr. Henry, how did we get here? Because we are having conversations about reparations as complex as they are, Mike, when I agree with you, they, they are complex conversations, but they are happening in places you wouldn't necessarily expect them to be happening. Uh, you know, in local cities, even a city like Boston. I was at a conference last year with uh, someone uh, who works for the city government in Boston. And Boston is, is looking at how does it put together some kind of uh, task force or committee to look at the harms done to Black folks as a result of slavery in a city like Boston, which is not known uh, for, you know, any kind of liberal race politics. It's known to be quite racist. So help us understand just briefly from a historical standpoint, how do we get to the place where cities around this nation are taking up the issue of reparations? Well, you know, I think we've gone through cycles of reparations. This is at least the, the fourth cycle, maybe the fifth. But you and, and the demands have been a little different in, in each cycle. Uh, and the first one was obviously immediately after the Civil War. Uh, and the most famous case, there are other instances, but the most famous case is Sherman and, and 40 Acres and a Mule. And of course, the uh, uh, Andrew Johnson and, and uh, others defeated any attempt by the radical Republicans to put real teeth into uh, to that. Um, and, and it was withdrawn. People had already uh, assumed some land were kicked off that land, in fact. Uh, but at the same time, and Martin Luther King writes about this as, as well as uh, Darity in, in his most recent work, whites were given land in the Homestead Acts of 1862 and 1866. About 246 million acres of land were given to whites for free to settle on in the West, of course, taken away from, from uh, Native Americans. Uh, Darity estimates that roughly a quarter of today's white population can trace descendants back who received land. Uh, so so we were shut out of that land, and at the same time, whites were getting uh, uh, that land. Uh, and land is wealth. It's intergenerational wealth that can be passed on. One of my favorite contemporary cases of that is Bruce's Beach in mm -hmm. Southern California. Absolutely. Um, and then at the turn of the century, 
uh, you have about almost 2 million uh, formerly enslaved are still alive. And you have a pension movement on uh, to give Civil War veterans pensions. And uh, there were quite liberal terms of the pensions. For example, if if you married a Union War soldier 25 years after the war uh, and he died, you could get widow's benefits. Uh, mm -hmm. So the, the formerly enslaved are sitting around and saying, you know, they're giving uh, Union soldiers, incidentally, it was much tougher for black Union veterans to get uh, those those pensions because you needed a birth certificate and not many enslaved, uh, formerly enslaved had birth certificates. Um, uh, they were even talking about giving Confederate soldiers. This is the U.S. federal government talking about giving Confederate soldiers pensions. Uh, so the, the formerly enslaved said, how about us? And uh, they formed up to seven mutual uh, benefit societies pushing for pensions. They're getting old. They can no longer work. They have all kinds of medical problems. Um, they're not successful in doing that, but it's the largest mass movement of blacks in the United States up to that point, with about a million and a half people organized in, in Cali Hass. A ha a ha House. Cali House mm -hmm. is one of the, the leaders of, of, of that movement. Um, World War I interrupts, you get the Garvey movement, et cetera, and we really don't see a, a high cycle of reparations to the mid-20th century. And I think uh, that awareness was driven by the civil rights movement. Uh, we're getting political and civil rights, which are much easier to agree upon. Uh, agree upon a vote is a vote, but when you ask somebody, "Well, what is a fair wage or income?" you get a whole bunch of different answers, and there's much less consensus about economic rights in the United States. But Martin Luther King puts forward an economic bill of rights for the disadvantaged. The Urban League puts forward a Marshall Plan. The black Muslims and the Black Panthers ask for land. And so there's a real shift in, in, in the demands. And most importantly, James Foreman starts asking the private sector for funds, the churches for funds, for reparations. Uh, and then I think we get to the, the current movement of reparations. Uh, and, and it, you know, for me, it's driven by the passage of the Civil Liberties Act in 1988, giving Japanese Americans reparations, because that inspired John Conyers. And John Conyers introduced his bill, Bill H.R. Uh, 40. Uh, it stayed in Congress until he left, and then it was picked up again and introduced by uh, Sheila Jackson. Uh, and they finally got hearings two years ago on that bill. And once again, it was a study commission. To look at the issue very much, I mean, the, the California legislation is modeled after that. Let's look at it. Let's determine the facts. Let's get some agreements on the facts. Let's get this history straight because we know history is sort of how I feel these days with certain sections of the population. Right, let's get the facts and then we can talk about solutions or recommendations. So I, I, I think uh, this current push has been inspired initially by that, but then George Floyd's murder by uh, the Minnesota police uh, initiated, uh, I think, the largest protest I've ever seen covering the globe. And those in some segments of the population who thought maybe we were in a post-racial post uh, era with the election of Barack Obama were reminded that we weren't. Uh, there are a number of us who weren't surprised by George Floyd's uh, murder, but we do see in terms of the polling then 
uh, some shift among white liberals to the left and support for that rising maybe eight to 10% in terms of the polling. But we also see a hardening of the right in terms of, of not only denying reparations, but going back and, and you know, banning books and banning critical race theory. And we don't want to talk about it. Um, so I, I think the, the, the most obvious uh, um, demonstration of its popularity now is in previous elections, you couldn't get uh, Democratic candidates to touch reparations with a 10-foot pole. Uh, uh, Barack Obama ran away from it. Al Gore ran away from it. Bill Clinton ran away from it. George Bush. Both Clinton and Bush apologized to Africans for the African slave trade, but they wouldn't say anything to African Americans, <laughs> the people who were enslaved. But this last election, all the major Democratic candidates either came out for a study of reparations, or that would be Joe Biden, or for Williamson, she was ready to cut checks and and and, and distribute them again. So that gives you a, a sense of how rapidly things have, have shifted. And of course, I think much more is going on at the state and local level than at the federal level. Yeah, when we come forward, Mike, I want to talk about some of these efforts at the uh, local level, because it seems like local communities have been energized. Uh, perhaps because of the unfortunate murder of George Floyd, this racial reckoning that we've been having around the country, these conversations about race. Uh, California obviously seemed a lot more motivated uh, two years ago when this task force was formed. We've heard some statements from our governor that seems to be walking back some of the commitment that uh, was made when this task force was actually uh, created. I want to talk about what is it going to take to move the issue of reparations forward and get past these study bills and get past these task force to get some real meaningful uh, reparative justice. Uh, stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. Use us directly. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. From California to Washington, D.C., activists are joining revived reparations movements and pushing for formal government compensation for the lasting harm of slavery's legacy on subsequent generations. From access to housing and education to voting rights and employment, all right, Michael, what is it going to take to move some of these uh, initiatives forward? We see a lot of activity, a lot of movement at the local level, a lot of study uh, uh, task force, a lot of task force that have been convened to study the harm that's been done to particular communities. But we still have this reality. If you believe this Pew Research uh, Center poll, this was just taken in 2021, 18% of whites uh, favor reparations. So that means that uh, 82% of them do not support among Latinos and Asians is only at 39 and 33% respectively. So given the low level of support amongst whites, Latinos, and Asians, what is it going to take? Well, also that study and uh, the article that the Associated Press has dealing with um how uh, Japanese Americans are um, uniting with some, some Japanese Americans are uniting with African Americans to fight for reparations as well, reparations for African Americans. Um, it says overall only 30% of Americans support reparations when it comes uh, for, for African Americans, largely as a legacy of slavery. So uh, the first thing that is going to take is if two thirds of Americans don't support 
what you want and what you call it, maybe you should call it something else, number one, because what you're calling reparations is not popular. And this is what I have to explain to African-Americans. Outside of, outside of African-American community, reparations ain't really that popular. Okay, number one. Number two, America has to have a massive history lesson. Okay, uh, so there's an article from um, uh, New York Times that deals with how about 60 about 60 percent of Americans uh, is called most Americans know little or nothing about Juneteenth poll finds. And then the article is from about 2021. It says about 60 percent of Americans know little or nothing about Juneteenth. And I would argue most of what they think they know is not true either, because it was not the last day of slavery. The Emancipation Proclamation did not free the slaves. And uh, we know that uh, some uh, some white slave owners in Texas kept their enslaved Africans for at least another year in Texas as well. OK, so America must have a massive history lesson. So during this period of time when we have uh, the Juneteenth celebration and because Juneteenth is a federal holiday, it can become a powerful tool to force into the national conversation a history and a discussion that many people don't want to have. But not to say you did this, you did that, but to educate America on the history of this country. And at the same time, one of the most important things that we have to do is shift the focus because uh, chattel slavery ends uh, basically 1865 with the 13th Amendment ratified. Shift the focus from slavery to present day structural inequities that are very evident. Deal with the laws and policies that were put in place to create those structural inequities and then trace that back to a history of slavery, as opposed to just putting the, the majority, not saying you're doing this, but instead of putting the majority of the focus on slavery, because there's an article from uh, cbsnews.com and there was a study that came out in um, 2021, 2020, September 2020. Racism uh, has cost the U.S. $16 trillion Citigroup fines. And they're not looking at 246 years. They're just looking at from uh, the year 2000 to about uh, 2019, 2020. And what th this study and there are other studies like it, it shows how racism is negatively impacting everyone in America. Yes, we get the brunt of it, but just very quickly, it lays out three areas. It says that black workers have lost $113 billion in potential wages over the past two decades because they couldn't get a college degree. It says the housing market lost $218 billion in sales because black applicants could not get home loans and about $13 trillion in business revenue never flowed into the U.S. economy because African-American entrepreneurs could not get access to bank loans. Most importantly, it says the U.S. could have $5 trillion in gross domestic product over the next five years if those gaps and others were closed today, the study indicated, which deals with laws and policies that deal with repairing this damage and deals with repairing these structural inequities. OK, so a lot of the messaging, I think, has to change, but also America must have a massive history lesson. So I hear what you're saying, Michael, uh, but let me ask you this, Dr. Henry. Do you think this is about education and information and knowledge? Because those stats that uh, Michael just articulated are, uh, you know, uh, economists know those stats. The folks that are at the highest level of our government in st cities, states, and at the federal level, they know that race-based uh, policies, they know that discrimination is costly. Employers know that. Uh, I'm a civil rights lawyer. I do a lot of employment law. Employers know that more diverse workplaces uh, create more productivity, 
create, uh, you know, more money dropping to their bottom lines. But none of that seems to motivate them to rid their workplaces of discriminatory policies and practices. So do you think this is about educating America about the the cost, the economic cost of some of these racial policies? Because it seems like to me that even when folks know, even these enlightened folks, let's talk about the folks in California. We're supposed to be one of the most enlightened, progressive states in this country. But even Californians are pretty uh, opposed in mass, overwhelmingly so, opposed to uh, any kind of reparative justice for black folks. Well, as I think somebody said a, a bit earlier, this is going to be a, a generational kind of project. Uh, I think part of it is education, and, and a good example of that is the 1619 project uh, that the New York Times uh, launched. Uh, but there was immediate pushback by the Trump administration with 1776 project. So you're going to have those, and we, we have that also with the banning of books, those kinds of battles. I would, I, you know, I would move my focus more from the national front because when, when I look at Congress and I look at the House of Representatives, you know, it's not going to happen in my lifetime with the House of Representatives. We're not going to flip certain districts in Mississippi when they're gerrymandered. But let's look at let's look at at home. All politics is local, and I give you two examples of you know instead of asking for cash reparations for slavery, let's talk about housing discrimination in Evanston, Illinois, for forty year period. That's in my lifetime, in your lifetime, where we couldn't buy homes, we couldn't get home loans from the bank. Do you think that's fair? You know, do you think it's fair that people were shut out of, of these areas, shut out of housing areas where there were good schools and put in inferior schools uh, and, and denied that kind of wealth? And it so happens that when you had that conversation in Evanston, Illinois, about, well, shouldn't we provide some funds to help black folks buy homes in Illinois? Shouldn't we provide some compensation for rent, et cetera, et cetera? People agreed with that. Oh, yes, just I, in let, Evanston, let me just stop but you. in I, Asheville, I, North Carolina, and Iowa City, Iowa, in other areas where we, we have a focus on local discrimination uh, around housing, but, which is but let me, the number let me one just form push of back wealth. A little, well, let me push back a, a minute on that, Professor Henry. Evanston, Illinois it, it is in some ways a, a very, uh, it's a microcosma, cosmic, you know, liberal cities. It's a small city next to Chicago, suburb of Chicago. Tulsa, Oklahoma, on the other hand, they've been fighting, whether you call it reparations or a public nuisance, which is a lawsuit that's going forward in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and not so much. So so the local initiatives seem to take off and have more traction when you're dealing with local governments and municipalities that are governed by Democrats or folks that consider themselves more liberal or progressive. And when you in cities that don't have that kind of governing body, then those local initiatives fall flat on their faces. They, they, they don't get much traction at all. I've talked to a lot of the folks out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, you know, to the contrary, Tulsa has been adamant about not acknowledging the harms, you know, perpetrated on the, the, the folks who were burned out of Black Wall Street. When we come forward, I want to talk about this local concept, although definitely Evanston is a good model we should talk about, but I'm not so certain that all politics, all local politics are going to lead us uh, to the same place. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. 
Let's get back to more of Aretha Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Michael, I agree with uh, Professor Henry that all politics are local and that we have an opportunity in some local communities to advance the issue of reparations, but not all local governments are created equally and not all local governments are receptive to the concept of restoring land or making any kind of reparative justice uh, you know, initiatives in their local governments. I was just reading an article, I think it was in the New York Times, about some families outside of Atlanta that are trying to recover some land that was taken from them. And the big issue is, you know, how is this government that's responsible for this land, this county, so it's not actually in Atlanta, maybe it's in Fulton County, uh, what the response is going to be. And some, by some accounts, it's, it's not going to be particularly positive or well-received. So is it, you know, what are you to make of these local initiatives? And should we expect that to be the next frontier of reparations? Uh, I think the local number one, the local initiatives are very important. Uh, and the reason why is, is because at the local level, that's where African-Americans tend to have more control over the politics as opposed to uh, at the federal level. Even though uh, there's about 59 members in the Congressional Black Caucus, 57 of them, about 57 are in the House of Representatives, but there are 435 members in the House of Representatives, and it takes 218 votes to get any bill passed. You only have two members of the Congressional Black Caucus in the U.S. Senate. There are 100 members in the Senate, about 95 of them are white, and Senator Tim Scott doesn't count because he already said he's not voting for reparations. So at the local level, uh, we have more control over this. Now, when we talk about Evanston, Illinois, I interviewed Robin Ruth Simmons on the African History Network show for an hour. And she was the one who spearheaded the uh, reparations movement there in, in Evanston. Evanston is a city, city of about 60,000 people. At the time, percentage of African-Americans was about 16%. What people got wrong is they were attacking that program and saying, oh, uh, you know, this uh, housing discrimination this has nothing to do with slavery, et cetera. The state of Illinois abolished slavery in 1818. Evanston, Illinois was not founded until the 1840s. Evanston, Illinois did not have a history of slavery, but they had a rampant history of housing discrimination, even before redlining was created in 1937 by the federal government. So what they were focused on doing was repairing the damage that the city of Evanston was responsible for inflicting upon African-Americans. You still have African-Americans alive in Evanston right now who are victims of the housing discrimination. So when we look at the local level, and we have a reparations task force that just started up uh, in the past three months or so here in Detroit. It's important for people to understand at the local level, they're not they, they can't repair the damage that the federal government did for like 246 years. They can more so repair the damage that that city was responsible for inflicting, not necessarily the federal government. OK, and even at the state level, the state more so will focus on repairing the damage largely that that state inflicted on African-Americans as opposed to the federal government. I think we have lost Michael's audio while we work to recover that. Let me ask you, Professor Henry, how hopeful are you that the California legislature is going to accept the recommendations that are going to come out in this 1,000 page uh, task force report that we're all waiting for that's gonna be uh, delivered to us uh, July 1st. I think they're gonna accept some of the recommendations and not other recommendations. I think 
cash payments is probably not going to get the support of the governor. Uh, things like uh, education funds, uh, money for housing and housing loans. And, and, and the California report was very innovative in looking at mental health, in looking at intellectual property rights, in looking at the foster care system and discrimination and all of those. I think you can get some agreement across party lines and certainly among Democrats that those kinds of things need to be corrected uh, in, in terms of school funding. I, I think there would be a lot of support for uh, equalizing uh, school finances so that we have pupils getting the same amount of money instead of leaving it up to uh, property taxes or the lottery. So uh, there's a long list of things, obviously, that was in the interim report. I expect even more in 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 the final report. And I think uh, those items that uh, will be cherry picked in terms of what's most likely to to gain favor. And some of that will be very important in terms of building a, a base for black wealth. And what do you think about San Francisco? Now, San Francisco came out with a pretty bold report uh, recommending some cash payments. Their, their report did recommend cash payments up to five million dollars if you meet if you can meet uh, certain criteria. Now, my understanding is that the county of San Francisco's board has not taken any uh, action with respect to that report as of yet. Maybe they're studying the recommendations in there, but they definitely haven't gave it, you know, haven't given it a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down. What do you think happens with respect to San Francisco? Well, I you know, I know somebody on the commission. I, I want to find out how they came up with that figure. It would be interesting to know uh, the economics of, of that figure and, and in terms of who qualifies. But once again, I suspect that recommendations that they come up with that don't have a big dollar figure attached, particularly at a time when the, the mayor's budget just came out in San Francisco and she's cutting things, uh, that the things that they can correct without uh, a large dollar amount attached to individuals are the ones most likely to be supported and passed. But it's educational and that we need to have a discussion around the things that aren't being uh, put forward and why. Yes. Uh how do you think we level set? I was on a panel with uh, Steve Bradford, Senator Steve Bradford. He is on the California Reparations Task Force. He's been one of the uh, spokespersons for the task force. And he was trying to level set at this uh, talk we were giving around Juneteenth and the relationship between Juneteenth and the fight for reparations. And when he said, don't expect a check, the audience had a very audible and negative response to that comment. I was in Evanston last year. Uh, Michael, before we lost him, talked about Robin Ruth Simmons and that, uh, you know, the housing program it was $25,000 that was made available for uh, improvement of your housing, down payment on of housing. Right. A lot of folks were disappointed, angry, upset, did not believe that that was reparation. So how do we level set in these local communities around this issue of a check? Because the policymakers, the, the historians, the professors, you know, you all are talking about policies and uh, dealing with policies. Uh, Michael, before we lost you, I was uh, saying that I was on a panel with Steve Bradford, who's right. on our reparations task force. He, he said no check and people went crazy. They lost their minds. Like, what do you mean no check? And I was in Evanston uh, at a conference with Robin Ruth Simmons. You know, I, I'm very familiar with the work she's done there. I right. have relatives in Evanston. I've talked to a lot of uh, friends and families on the ground. They ain't happy with that $25,000. You know, there were some people who were applauding it, but there were a lot of folks who were quite 
upset about it and felt like it didn't go far enough. They wanted money in their pocket. A lot of black folks who were subjected to that redlining policy, they have since right. moved out of Evanston. So they weren't eligible for those uh, housing grants, that, that $25,000 housing grant. So how do we level set? Because black folks want to check. Right. Well, I, I think it's important to set the proper expectations up front. You know, there were 111 policies that were uh, presented uh, about a month or so ago at the meeting that they had the California Reparations Task Force. And it's important to understand what you're repairing the damage for. Uh, cash payments can be, like I said, we need comprehensive reparations. Cash payments can be part of comprehensive reparations, but you uh, also have to clearly define the harm. So the the uh, 500 page report in the uh, 28 page executive summary, you know, they outline uh, 12 harms that have been inflicted upon African-Americans, everything from the racial wealth gap to mental and physical harm and neglect, unjust legal systems, stolen labor, pathologizing black family, uh, racism in the, in, in, in the environment and infrastructure, housing segregation, political disenfranchisement, racial terror. So uh, I would I think the conversation has to shift from just looking at reparations and getting a check. And the reason why is because those laws and policies that have created these structural inequities are will still be in place. So if you only look but, but at reparations But why does it have to be an either or? Nobody, I, I think that audience that I was in, that audience I was with on Saturday, they didn't say we didn't want the policies. They didn't say we didn't want education policies, housing policies, mental health policies, criminal justice we need, reform. We need all of they them. Want they want all of them, but they want the check too. And that's where it seems like folks get a little skittish. I started this conversation by saying that. I'm going to go back to it as right. I end this conversation. It's why does it have to be either or? And folks keep telling you know people stop focusing on the check. And I'm here to tell you, as somebody that's on the ground on this issue, folks want a check. Right. Yeah. I, I think it's important to deal with all of it as opposed to just because some people just sum up reparations as just a check. And the problem is, is that uh, the laws and policies that have inflicted the harm and create the structural inequities will still be in place once you spend the money and you haven't changed that. So that's why it has to be all encompassing. We have to have we have to have all of it. Uh, and that also deals with uh, who you have in political power to make that happen and looking at doing it in installment plans as opposed to just uh, a lump sum. OK, so, for instance, to give you a quick example, um, San Francisco, five seconds, Michael, Oh, uh, <laughs> five million dollars for 20,000 African-Americans in San Francisco would be 100 billion dollars. That's seven times the annual budget. OK. Big conversation, guys. I'm sorry, we're out of time. Got to leave it there. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Charles Henry, uh, Michael Inhoptep, uh, radio yes. host of African History Network show. Make sure you check out his show. Got to have both of you back. This is a big conversation. Can't wait to get that thousand page report. Uh, comb through it and we'd love to get you back for your responses uh, to Absolutely. what's happening in California because as California goes, so does the rest of the nation. All right, y'all, I'm out. The next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Stay with us. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.